Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. All right, everyone. I've got a very special guest here. Everyone's a special guest, right? If they're on, if they're on takeaways, at least the ones I've seen. All right, but this is a very, very special guest. Itai Dedon. Itai was born in Agora Hills, California, and moved to Israel with his family when he was just ten years old. So, like most Israeli kids, he went through high school, graduated, and then ultimately joined the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And he became a tank commander. We're going to talk about your, your tank commander service. Uh, after three years of service, you, you move back to the United States at the behest of your brother, Tom, who will be on the next episode. But explain to everybody what you were doing in Minnesota in the retail business at that time. Well, hopefully Tom can give a better answer on that in the next episode, but... Um... I was in the military still, and I was supposed to sign up for another five years. And Tom called me and was trying to talk me into coming back to the States and do some business. And I didn't want to. I was deep into the military. I wanted to stay. And then uh, right before Christmas, he calls me at a bunch of retail stores in Mall of America. And he said, hey, I I actually need your help because I can't find enough workers and this, that, and the other. Uh, So I came with two of my soldiers. We all uh, finished at the same time. And we came to Mall of America to help him sell. Do you know Heelys, the shoes? Yeah, heck yeah, I know Heelys. So it's a knockoff of Heelys, right? And it's it has wheels that you basically attach to your shoes. That's a that's a knockoff because Heelys have the wheel inside. inside. Yep. Uh, so he's selling this <laughs> uh, in the third floor of Mall of America in uh, December. It's minus 32 degrees, and I learned that Celsius <laughs> and Fahrenheit uh, collide at that uh, same exact degree. And uh, you're not allowed to use these things in the mall or at school or any indoor facility, pretty much. So I, I always say I can sell ice to Eskimos, but I'm over here trying to sell these wheelies for people for Christmas gifts to give to their kids that can't use them. Uh, so that was an interesting start. To, what to were they called? Back. I don't remember. No. No. I'm trying to erase that memory in general. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So from there, you moved to Las Vegas. You randomly picked Las Vegas at just the right time at the peak of the global Great Recession. Yeah. Uh, but that was really an impetus for you you and your brother. Uh, ultimately, you guys got into business for yourselves with 777 Movers, which I've used now twice, and I'm about to use you guys again. Uh, right. So I will give you a wonderful testimonial. Every time has been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, but essentially, you are, Itai, is a business owner of multiple businesses, not just moving. You are a real estate investor. You are on the, You are a council member with the Las Vegas chapter of IAC, which is the Israeli American Council. You and I are both involved in the Jewish Nevada Men's Division. And if all that wasn't enough, you're a devoted family man. Correct. How's that? Which one of them? All of them. <laughs> Those are my words. Tell us in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Well, I, I'd start from the last, actually, and say that's the thing I'm most proud of. Uh, wife, happily married, uh, 10 years, three kids, three, six, and nine. 
And at this phase in life, I, I try to direct at least 70% of what I do towards that goal, right? So my kids are growing up in Las Vegas, and that's a challenge on its own. And that's the reason why the first uh, things that you touch, the board member, you know, the being in Jewish Nevada, those are things that are greatly important for me, for my kids, to have them grow inside a community over here that uh, supports and, and hugs them uh, to try to keep them out of the rest of the things this town has to offer. Um, other than that, yeah, we, we started with moving. So when we moved here from Minnesota, uh, I got into moving somehow. We, we, by the way, when we were in Minnesota, we were trying to decide where we're going to move to because I told him, Tom, this is uh, great, but uh, I didn't move here to sell uh, skates and malls, <laughs> right? So he was like, okay, what do you want to do? So I said, let's find a place. Uh, it's recession. You can tell people are really contemplating if to buy this $20 device or not. And um, let's see where, where there is the most money, where recession doesn't really affect, right? And Las Vegas, we've all seen those movies. There's money everywhere. Uh, let's go to Vegas. So we got on a plane and uh, moved to Vegas. We each had a little duffel bag, you know, and we found out that we got to the heart of the recession. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting uh, wake-up call. I started working and moving uh, in a different company, and Tom got into construction, so basically, I was working seven days a week, 18 hours, and Tom was not working because uh, construction was on pause and everybody was getting evicted. Uh, so that's what I did for a few good months until Tom joined me in the movie. So who would hire you guys at the time, a moving company? If people, so people are getting evicted. They're hiring you to move their stuff out? Mainly landlords. Landlords are hiring you to get the, yeah. the debris left in, in yeah. homes that were Either that or people that got... Or, yeah. yeah. Either that or people get that got noticed that they have to empty out. So they just hired a moving company. And, and we were working under a different company back then as employees. And we saw that we are not advancing and are not moving up the way that we wanted. And uh, we sat one day and said, you know what? If they can do it, we can do it. Right. We know that saying. And uh, we decided to start on our own. So we moved our parents and sisters back from Israel. They were in Israel still. And uh, we started Triple uh, Seven Movers. And it was me, Tom, my mom, dad, and sister running everything. Uh, and that's it. From there, it just rolled, you know, rolled down the hill, up the hill, I'd say. Uh, slowly, we got more and more employees and grew to the fact that we could separate ourselves from day to day and really work on developing. And we were... Everything that we did, we, we really wanted to save up and, and really build our future. And we bought as much real estate as we could back in 2008, 9, 10, all the way through up to date, but majority up to 13 where there were really great purchases. So these are single family residential? Yep. Single family so residential. were you flipping them at the time? No, nope, we were just buying. So buying go, and put in renters. Yep. We'd go to an auction, uh, me, Tom, and my dad. And uh, we'd buy as much as we could finance. Uh, we properties for forty, fifty, sixty thousand back then, and just buy, buy, buy without even looking at them. And slowly, we developed like a little crew of people that know how to do tile, you know, drywall, mm -hmm. AC, and uh, the AC contractor that we've known for about six, seven, eight years. He said, "Listen, you know, I see what you guys are doing. I have this big contract I just signed with uh, Open Door back then." And I need capital. 
and I need equipment and I don't have it and I see how you guys are scaling, let's work something out together. You know, open an HVAC company. Um, so we did. Uh, I was against it back in the time. Uh, they call me the break. Let, let the record show. <laughs> they call me the. Ty breaks. was against this idea. Yeah, I'm. I'm the emergency break. I usually I shut down about ninety percent of the ideas within uh, our trio. Uh, and the I trio almost, being you, Tom, and your dad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I almost shut that one down. And my dad came one day and said, "You know what? I'm gonna go for it. Just let me do my venture. We're gonna all invest and let's see what happens." So uh, we did. We bought all this equipment and trucks and opened up a new company and did this and that. And uh, the contractor, uh, after probably two months, came up with a health problem and uh, disappeared. Oh, wow. And uh, if that's not enough, uh, we all know what happened to Open Door. They uh, closed the door and uh, we, uh, <laughs> pun intended, right? And we uh, got to the point where um, we don't have this big contract. Uh, we don't have anybody to run the business and we're joking about it before. I barely know how to operate a thermostat, right? Uh, so it's a complete different niche. We got into moving, knowing the basics because we're employing uh, employees in the industry and we knew the out ins and outs and, uh, in AC, it's a complete different animal. And as, as business owners, you got to adopt and adapt and, and find out what to do. And we, we, uh, found somebody that is very capable and we brought him in. Uh, and after probably six, seven months, that didn't work out either. And he left with no notice. And we got to the, the situation where we had to decide, okay, we're either shutting this down or we're bringing the correct person because I was trying to order HVAC equipment that we sold and I call the manufacturer and I try to explain to them what I need. And I felt like a joke, right? Uh, because I didn't know anything. I was, they started asking about upflow, downflow, you know, side casing, <laughs> the indoor unit, the outdoor unit. And I was like, a five ton AC system. Like what's so <laughs> difficult over here, right? Um, <laughs> Apparently they're not all the same. They're not. <laughs> I would not have known that. <laughs> now I know. Now I know. But we, That's one so of our funny. distributors, um, I don't know, maybe you heard about this phone call that I was trying to heard, uh, order uh, equipment from there or something. But uh, we got in contact and, and we brought him in. We said, hey, you're coming in as partner and general manager. How'd the interview go? Were you like, uh, can you explain to me what upflow is? <laughs> I, I, I wanted to act about like, side panels? I didn't, I wanted to act like I know a little bit, right? <laughs> So I Googled a little bit and YouTubed a little <laughs> bit and, uh, you know, did, did, uh, and brought him in and said, uh, hey, he thought he's coming into a meeting where we're ordering equipment. And I said, uh, listen, um, you're going to leave there and come here. And he looked and started laughing and said, there's no way. I'm so comfortable. Like, I'm good. I have job security. I have everything. And we said, well, whatever you have, we'll give you more no matter what. Because it was really either that or we're just closing this down. And it's been... Uh, great success since it's growing rapidly we purchased another company and absorbed into it since in hvac and i i branched out mainly to the hvac seeing the potential uh and tom is now mainly running the moving side of it and uh real estate and my dad in covid we told him hey we don't know how dangerous mm. what's going on don't come to the office and he said then what am i supposed to do so we said you and mom stay home and we'll see and it was like uh, like the pause, the spread. How did they call it back then? Yeah, uh, flatten uh, the curve. Flatten the curve. So everybody were closing down for two weeks. Mm -hmm. So uh, that lasted for two years. And uh, at the end, we said, Dad, these two years have been um, great for the business. We've been doing good. We, we can tell that we can run this without you. So 
go enjoy life. You know, so he, he retired, him and my mom. Cool. Yeah. What did they do back in Israel? For, my for dad is a serial entrepreneur. So he, he moved here in 85 or 84, and he sold Kirby's door-to-door. And What's Kirby's? Uh, the vacuum cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> the Kirby vacuum cleaners. So it's a big thing back then uh, to sell them door-to-door. You know, they, they knock on your door, and usually this is in the bad areas because all the good ones were taken. So he'd knock on the, the security screen, right? They'd mm-hmm. open that, open the door, and then you spill something on the carpet by mistake. And, you know, you get in trouble and you say, don't worry, I got something to clean it. And then you clean it and the people fall in love with the product. And that's how he started. And he had good days, bad days. Yeah. And he got to where he's uh, managing the whole southern region as Kirby. And then we decided to move to Israel, to grow up in Israel. Uh, the childhood in Israel is very different from here. And my parents really wanted that for us. Uh, so we were very lucky to, to be able to, to experience that as children. So talk about childhood in Israel and specifically your other siblings. So childhood in Israel is a very, you develop a lot of independence, right? So, you know, we always joke. I used to uh, come back from school, drop my backpack and be outside until the sun's down and drink from the hose outside and all that. So it's still like that in Israel. So it's not necessarily third world country or anything like that, the opposite. But the culture is go play outside, go with your friends. You know, so we'd walk from, I was in fifth grade. My sister was, I think, second grade or something like that. So second grade, fifth grade, and my brothers at eighth grade go out to the park together. And, and we see that with our children these days too. So when we go and visit, our children will go with like a big cousin that's 12 years old and they'll walk a good five, six blocks down, go to the park, play around, come back. And it's beautiful. Like for kids to see that, um, I, I, the childhood itself was just amazing. And then getting into the military is, it's a chance that not, not a lot of people have. And selfishly, I'll say that, that it, it was an experience that really changed me to the good and really put me in a structure and taught me so many things. So you're, you're a 19 year old and you're commanding a tank inside Lebanon. We'll get to that in a second. Hold on. Okay. How many siblings do you have? I have three. So brother, older brother. Yep. And then it's you. And then two sisters, two sisters. So the last sister was born in Israel and moved here. So she did the opposite that I did. Uh, She was born in Israel, moved here. I think it was third or fourth grade. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, I moved to Israel in fifth grade, not knowing any read and write in Hebrew. That was uh Oh, so you had to learn it. Yeah. Gotcha. Very cool. I'm going to ask you about the Ten Commander days later. Yeah, no problem. Um, but this show is called Takeaways, and it's uh, about people who I have had takeaways from and that have influenced me. Before I ask you the question that I ask everybody, I'll say when I was putting this together, I'm thinking about you and Tom and like this term like-minded comes to mind and we've heard it before. It's nice to be around like-minded people. And I started like writing down how many things we are like-minded around. So obviously religion, we're both Jewish. This dual identity of American Israeli or Israeli American, which exists. Uh, Family life. I have three kids. You have three kids. Prioritizing that. Community involvement. Jewish Nevada, we talked about. IAC, we talked about. Other things, other communities too. Being business owners, uh, being in real estate in some form or fashion, 
being barbecuers slash smokers. I'm talking about meat now. <laughs> I have to clarify that. Yes. Um, when I was getting back into my fitness journey, it was you and Tom that really pulled me out of atrophy because you guys were already going to Lifetime Fitness at the time. Early morning, it was kind of funny. The dynamic with you and Tom, and then me, the third wheel, and there's another guy that was going with us pretty regularly. Right. It's like we're meeting. What time did we meet? 6 a.m.? It was 5.30. 5.30, which to me, this is an ungodly thing to do. (laughs) I can't even wrap my head around it, but it was important for me to get back into that. You guys were already going. That was the time. So you'd get there at like 5, 5.15, start warming up. I don't remember if I would beat Tom there or he would beat me there. But when we started getting into the workouts, like you are there early, you're warming up, you've already designed the workout for the day, you're ready to go. I would say I was probably in the middle as far as motivation level. You were yeah. one, I was two. Tom just did not want to be there, <laughs> did not want to do it. It was, yeah. really, it was really funny. But all those things, there's so much over the years that uh, – we have built a relationship. It's like to say we're like-minded is pretty, pretty spot on. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. All right. What was the single most influential thing in your life that has defined or shaped you the most? I'd say, so you're not taking take, you're not talking takeaway in general. You're looking for one single moment. Yeah, I'd say definitely uh, we're going to talk about it later, Heim, but uh, Lebanon, the war, that that changed a lot of perspectives and really, I, I'd say that definitely. Well, let's talk about it now. Okay, it's time. <laughs> it's time. I mean, we talked about you, were, you joined the IDF. Yeah. Now, you said it's uh, not common for people to get into the army. I thought it was required service but is that because you were american born not israeli born no no i was talking general worldwide so looking at at teenagers here and looking at people over here in the states 2021 up to 30 years old comparing them to a 19 year old in israel you can see a complete difference in israel it is mandatory so anybody that can health wise serve in the military has to serve in the military so it's required service right out of high school yes okay Mm-hmm. Was it required for you though? Yes, because you were living in Israel, but you were were yep. you an American citizen, Israeli? You, yeah, you have both dual. Dual. Okay. dual. Yeah, if you are living in Israel, you are obligated to serve, um, even if you have dual citizenship. So once I think the cutoff is sixteen years old, so you can't at the age of seventeen decide to leave Israel and not serve in the military. My sister's like that. My mm-hmm. sister, the whole family moved back when she was seventeen and a half. And up to this stage, she hasn't gone back to Israel yet because things have to sort out because you got to think Israel is in dire need of military, right? With the strategical and geographical and and all that. Um, And it can't afford to have everybody that doesn't want to serve fly abroad when they're 17. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's, it's a very strict policy. So you're 19, you 18, 18, you enroll for service in the IDF. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. Yeah. So you go in, you start from high school. So you go and do all kinds of tests to see where they want to place you. Uh, I didn't really do the test for like the elite forces. You can go and do like week long. Um, it's like hell week in, uh, you know, the Navy SEALs. 
So you go through something like that. So they build up where um, where they're going to put you and what capabilities you have, physical, emotional, mental. Uh, I didn't do that. I wanted I wanted just a basic service, nothing too crazy. Um, and I ended up saying, you know, I'll, I'll go wherever you guys need me. And I got to uh, be in the tanks in Shirion in Hebrew. So it's the armored unit division, I guess. Uh, got in. Uh, right off the bat, my commander is Tom's trainee because Tom was three years ahead of me. So whoever he was training and... So Tom trained the guy that is now your commander. Yeah. So do you get special treatment now Absolutely or the not. opposite? The exact opposite. I got payback treatment, ah, which is good. Oh, I you see. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it builds you up pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, so I joined at 18. Uh, so Tom was also in... in- Tom left. No, I his, think. his uh, service was in, what'd you call it? Armored? Yes, same thing. What'd you call it? I don't know in English. I'd say maybe armored division unit or something All like right. that. It's because in, in the States, you have tanks, tanks in right? every, uh, you have it in the Army, you have it in the um, Navy, I believe. No, Navy, probably not. But you, ha- you have it in different units. So in Israel, it's separated by, w- there is no Army, Navy, uh, whatever. There's ground force and air force, and then ground force is the. F- you know, infantry, armored unit, all that. Okay. And Tom was also in the same thing. Yes. Got it. So now you're getting hazed by his trainee. Pretty much. Yeah. For four months. Uh, and then after four months, uh, sorry, eight months. Uh, after eight months, they decide, because you do four months as uh, the armored um, tank training. That's the second four months. And the first four months are infantry training because as... Um, in Israel, tanks are for war. We don't use them in the day-to-day. So most of your service, technically, you're an infantry soldier. Uh, so we did four months of that and then four months of tanks. And then I decided I wanted to be a commander. So I stayed another four months uh, commander school. Came up to my unit uh, from the south, way in the desert, uh, to my unit in the north. So in our terms, kind of like a Nevada uh, landscape. And then moving up to like an Oregon-Washington landscape. Uh, so moved up there. It's the Lebanon-Syria border. And uh, I walk in and my commander introduces himself. And he's like, okay, I want you to be with us for a couple of days, get to meet all the soldiers. And because you're brand new out of the mint tank commander, we're, we're going to let you choose your gunner, your loader, and your driver. Because usually they... They pry. I don't know if pry, but as a brand new tank commander and you have soldiers that it's their second, third year, uh, you have a little bit problems commanding on them normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, because they I, essentially have more experience than yeah. you and more in a way, not really seniority because the ranks are different, right? But yeah. more. So ranks are different. Seniority is a super important thing uh, in the military. And sometimes it outranks ranks uh, in many cases. And I came in and I, I was, um, and in my youth, I was a volunteer and kind of like a Boy Scouts movement in Israel. And I always, I always liked, um, to help people. Right. So the troubled kids, the, I, I never really like just, just to have it simple and easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I came in and I was there for two days and I said, okay, I want this gunner, this loader and this driver. And he looked at me and said, absolutely not. I said, you, you told me to choose. And he's, he's <laughs> like, you chose the three, 
these guys even they're all in the officers team so i'm i'm a commander not an officer right those are only in officer teams because nobody can control them i said well it's not controlling it's leading i got this and he said you know what <clears throat> i'll let you choose one and i said okay so i chose my loader uh which is so in a tank a loader is the guy that is more of the adrenaline junkie right because you got to think when something's happening He's pulling out the shells, loading them in, moving everything around within the tank while the tank is driving 30, 40 miles an hour. Uh, so he looked at me, said, are you absolutely sure? Because this guy, he won't listen to anybody. And that guy, I, I he, he saved my life pretty much, I know, because mm. nobody else could have handled what he handled in war. And that was a great pick. He listened only to me. So my commanders, 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 uh, wouldn't get any respect from him. Just uh, we we created a very nice structured team. Um, and yeah, so you get a loader. How do you pick the other two at this point? So he picked them for me. He gave me uh, my gunner and driver were both. Uh, so my loader had only, I think it was uh, a year left at that point, or six months left, or something like that. Uh, but my gunner and driver were both with me in the basic uh, training when I started. So we're at the same level of year and seniority and all that. Uh, so that was kind of more simple, quote unquote. Uh, but all three stuck with me, you know, to the end. My loader got, you know, he finished the year uh, earlier than me. But um, yeah, so we started over there in the Lebanon border. All right. So now you're a commander. Yeah. You've got your crew. You've got your tank. And this is the Lebanon border is your first, yep. like, deployment? First post. post? Deployment post. Yeah. So... And Israel is very small, right? So we have four borders, and we don't go past those borders. And um, each border is a different um, type of border. I'd say maybe five, if you want to be uh, more up to date. And I started up in the Lebanon border. I was there for six months. Um, and we were in a bunker. <clears throat> and the bunker was essentially full of infantry soldiers. And there was one armored unit, which was a tank. Uh, and every time they did something, the tank had to cover. So essentially, we were out of the bunker in the tank outside between 18 to 20 hours a day. Uh, now, the tank might sound nice, but it's not the most comfortable environment, you know, and it's not water uh, sealed. Everything's open. You get rained on. You get and it I was, was going to ask, like, what's the what's the climate like? It's like Oregon, Washington. So it's raining almost every day. And it's uh, December. It's freezing. cold. Yeah, freezing. And uh, the tank, you have to run it almost all the time, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't shut it off. And the air intake of the tank is from inside the tank. So the air comes from where you stand, basically. So you're in a, in a big fan, mainly, uh, with rain and cold. And <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. It was, uh, you know, hypothermia happened a few times, all kinds of stuff like that. And the time that we were inside... Uh, the bunker, we were able to go and shower really quick because we always had to be ready. There's a rule that says within two minutes, you had to be able to get a shell in the air, right? To, sh- to shoot basically within two minutes. So even if you're sleeping inside, you have to within two minutes be tank, started, up to your post and be able to cover if you need. Um, <clears throat> so that was that was a little bit of a interesting beginning to my service. And then <clears throat> from there, we went down to um, Egypt. 
and down in Egypt, we we covered the so Egyptian. Wait, is Lebanon is in the north. Yep. In the north, what west? North northwest. North. Northeast is Syria. Okay. And now Egypt, you're going south. Yep. Southwest, All the way right? south. Yeah. So you're going the whole length of Israel. It's about a whole five and a half hour drive. So uh, we go down to the south. Do you take your tank or you have no. a new tank? You just So Egypt, uh, we're lucky to have a great peace treaty with Egypt. So there's no tanks. Okay. And the Egyptian soldiers on the Egyptian side. So in Lebanon, we have the Hezbollah on the border, which is a terror organization. The Lebanese uh, army is not on the border because the southern Lebanon is Hezbollah uh, ran and they're basically controlled by Iran. Um, down in Egypt, it's the opposite. Very peaceful border. The Egyptian soldiers over there, they usually put the people that, you know, kind of like um, King of the North, right? Where they send all the exiles to the North because nothing happens over there. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah. <laughs> so same thing in Egypt. You know, they send all the exiles. They're not really soldiers. But we were mainly uh, there because on the Egyptian border, there's Gaza. And from Egypt, they try to smuggle in either ammunition or things like that. Uh, so we're infantry. We're doing ambushes, things like that. Uh, we were there for about four months and then uh, a war struck in Lebanon. So what year was this? 2007. Uh, now that you said that, I probably took off a bunch of parts where we did training and we did other borders as well that were peaceful as well. But... Um, from Egypt, we get that call. Hey, listen, be ready. Now, we're holding about a 20, 30-mile line on the fence. My In platoon. Egypt? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so they're basically saying, get ready. Get your stuff ready because there was an attack on two Hummers uh, in Israel that were just patrolling on the border. Uh, four were uh, kidnapped. And a tank... The tank that was there that within two minutes needs to be up and ready came up to be ready. And there was a, a big bomb over there that was just waiting for him. So the whole tank blew up and all four died oh, on wow. spot. And they said, this is probably going to be a serious thing. And you guys are used to that border. So just get ready. And within less than 24 hours, they got us on buses up to the Golan Heights where our tanks were. Get the tanks ready for war and, and basically go up to Lebanon. Um, well, Lebanon's a very long story, so we will we, we'll kind of slim it down to um, a couple minutes. Yeah, are you in a rush? I'm, I'm, no, <laughs> I'm not in a rush at all. It's fascinating. Yeah, so so up in uh, Lebanon, we get there initially. How do they, I'm um, curious, how do they move you up there? So we you get, get in a van? Yeah, we have our buses that take us up to Gamna in uh, the Golan Heights, where our division actually sits, stores the equipment all that year long. We do all of our training, everything over there. Um, from there, we load the tanks onto big uh, trailers. Uh, they haul the tanks up, and then we go up in a bus, all the soldiers. So by this point, we're already, I think, three, four days into the war. The whole northern part of Israel was evicted. Uh, all the civilians were moved down. And Israel is a war zone, right? It's not even Lebanon. We're driving up Israel through Israeli cities. And there's just bombs falling everywhere, right? 
So we're in this they, bus. Where they, they're, they're being fired out of Lebanon yeah. into Israel. Yeah. So the difference between an, a military slash army to a terror organization is the terror organization doesn't care where these bombs land. They want casualties, right? So they just shoot them without any aim, pretty much. Is this before Iron Dome? This is. So now Israel has this technology called Iron Dome that Iron Dome. Dome. Iron Dome. Iron Dome. Yeah. That is able to uh, shoot rockets out of the sky, essentially. Intercept them. Intercept them. So this is even before that existed. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's before. Uh, And we're in this unarmored, obviously, bus driving up. You see everything happening. And, uh, you know, we start writing letters just in case something happens. Right. And we put it. Who did you write your letter to? Your parents? Yeah. Yeah. So... We put it in our formal uniform, right? Because if uh, they do bury you in the military, they bury you in the formal uniform. So we put it in the formal uniform and gave it to our commander to basically take back to base. And uh, now we're going up and we get to the most northern part of Israel. Above, it's called Kiryachmona. So above Kiryachmona, we get there, they unload the tanks, they unload us, and everything was... I'd call it like a disaster, right? Nobody knew exactly what's happening because at this point, you're not in war yet. It's not a a defined war. There's no goals. There's no objectives. There's no nothing because at this point, we're more of defense and planning to see what's going on. Um, So we're over there prepared, basically. Um, And... They had us briefed for a huge mission to go in and conquer into Lebanon. I'd say about 10 or 15 miles in uh, up to, uh, it's called the Saluki. So it's like a big canyon over there that would give us uh, not only a, a way to advance from there uh, in further if needed, but now gives a 15 mile buffer. So 15 miles less in Israel get bombed at, right? Because we cleaned that area from terror and we're pushing them more north. So we got debriefed on that. We have 13 tanks, uh, another few, um, you know, bulldozers to to, uh, move rocks or anything if needed, and about uh, three more armored vehicles. And we go through this whole debrief, and they say, okay, now wait. And we wait about two days. And after two days, they come to us, they say, you know what? We're actually going to move you to the other side of the border, all the way on the ocean. So from the north east portion of it uh hermon if you know where hermon is right where the snow mountain yeah so from there we move all the way to the other side and they're saying we're actually doing big advances over there and we need a big armored unit um so are they are they now inside of the lebanon territory yeah so so you got to think the way that i was there um for six months or whatnot beforehand, they had a platoon over there already, right? Or several platoons that held that line. So that platoon is already in. And now they need us to come in and basically reinforce and refresh and and split it out again, right? So they bring up um, a huge uh, armored brigade uh, with a brand new tanks. We had the, the Merkava 2. There was three and four. So they brought up the four, which is a brand new tank. And we know 
not only unit pride, right? But we've practiced on our tanks so much. These brand new tanks, these guys never practice on them. And um, we were concerned. And they said, don't worry, they're going to handle this mission when it comes. We need you there. So they moved us all the way to the other side, driving the tanks in Israel. So think about driving from Vegas to Henderson on a tank on the highway. <laughs> that was surreal. And we're driving on the highway and we know all these places because, you know, we traveled them as civilians. There's, that's where all the waterfalls are and all the forests are and everything like that. And we get all the way to the other side of the border on the tank. And over there, it was a complete different uh, environment than where we were. Now we come in, they already have operations running. I come with a tank. They come, 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 come. I go in and they say, okay, debrief. You have two hours to get ready. You're headed in tonight. So, okay. No problem. Wait, What's are you going in on? one of the new tanks? No. Okay. No. So if you want to circle to the new tanks, what ended up happening with them at the, I'd say a week and a half later, they took that mission that we had and they got ambushed by the Hezbollah, uh, probably 30 rockets, their, their commando unit of the uh, Hezbollah. And all 12 tanks were shot down. Wow. Yeah. They got the first one, the last one, and just went one by one heavy casualty um yeah so we we ended up uh getting to that debrief and the commander says you know we have two injured inside infantry it's a place called Aita Ashaib uh and it's about so you got to understand we're on the Israeli side and this is a Lebanese city inside Lebanon and there's less than half a mile in between right about half a mile mm -hmm. uh, from side to side on the border. So it's not like we're going to a different country. It's okay. We have inside over here, two soldiers that are injured. One of them has Sharpnel inside of his main artery. So a soldier is literally sitting and holding. Uh, and we have to go in, we have to rush in. So two hours and then they give the whole debrief. And they say at the end of the debrief, there's a command that if uh, something happens and the main commanders are going to say on the radio that it's eshlechilutz, it's basically uh, fire for evacuation, right? And if that happens, get ready because there's, um, I don't know the name in English, but there's tanks and then there's that shoot shells from like 20 miles away, mm -hmm. artillery, right? So the artillery will cover basically. So you're going to start seeing artillery everywhere. So we go in about two hours later and we're driving me and my commander. Uh, so he's ranked higher. He's ahead of me. I'm in the middle. Uh, there's another tank that isn't part of our unit with us. And then a bulldozer in front because he has to clear out the way while we're driving and two armored units in the back to take all the injured. Uh, we're driving in and we're basically in the middle of a canyon because the way that it led, it's kind of like a canyon. And then the city, we come, we approach the city from the bottom of the canyon. The city's up headed to the top of that mountain, right? So they place us in the middle of the canyon. And doesn't sound safe. It's the worst, absolute worst location there is. I kind of butched it, by the way. We arrived there a day earlier. And. The day earlier, we were on a mountain observing that city and 
and we were very exposed. And I told my commander, listen, we have to find a better location to cover from. He didn't listen to me. He ended up saying, you go to that location. I'll cover from here. I went to that location. He got shot down. Uh, all four were okay. We didn't know that he got shot down because his radio, everything went. Oh, wow. So At we're, least he gave you permission to go. We're in the back of the hill because as tanks, you're not, you're not supposed to just stand and observe. You're exposed when you shoot and then you come back. And that's what they taught me in tank school, right? And he's like, you're right but I feel like I should be here. You're right. You go to the back of the hill mm-hmm. over here and be ready, right? So in the back of the hill, him and his whole team are running towards us in the middle of Lebanon. So tank's gone. They're running. They're running towards us. My gunner almost shoots them down. Oh. Because who would have thought you have four people running to you with guns, yeah. right? So sorry. Yeah, I completely uh, moved past that. So the night after... um. We're in this canyon and we say, okay, settle in. We're going to wait. An hour later, I go on the radio. I'm like, hey, commander, what's what's going on? He's like, hey, I don't know. We're just waiting. So wait another two hours. And again, what's going on? We're in a bad spot over here. And he says, uh, I'll, I'll check. And he checks and gets back to me and says, yeah, they're still on the way. There's some delay. They ha- They got into contact over there. Uh, and all of a sudden we notice because my gunner in this time, he's running through with, um, with basically, um, not infrared vision, but heat sensor vision. Mm-hmm. And he's locating around us in the mountains, two to four soldier units settling in. Now, Israel doesn't operate two to four, uh, people usually. And it doesn't look like an Israeli forces based on the way that they so did So there's it. like multiple little units, either two guys or four. Yep. And so I'm just, here's what I'm picturing. There's, you say three tanks and a bulldozer? Pretty much, yeah. And three then another five two. and a couple, two that are. Yeah. So five, six vehicles, armored vehicles in a canyon, totally like exposed. You guys are sitting ducks basically. Yep. And coming, is it? From the hill, like yep. from above you, yep. a bunch of different units in two and four, and yep. they're kind of set. Where are they settling? Like behind rocks and shrubs and stuff? So this is about half a mile to a mile out. Mm-hmm. So all you see is little heat spots, right? And he'd be like- It's nighttime though. It's so nighttime. You can see it with the heat yep. vision, but you guys can't see it with your with yeah. the naked eye. So I have another scope that I can see what he's seeing. And every, you know- 20, 30 minutes. He's like, Dadon, that's my nickname, right? It's like, Dadon, look, look in the scope. So I look in the scope and I see two, three, four um, people. And then you see them kind of like go underground and they disappear. And in the tanks, there's something called uh, azimut. I don't know how to use that word in English, but it's kind of like the angle from the tank, right? So like when you navigate mm-hmm. angles, so you can see exactly which angle it was, right? So I give him a notepad. I say, write down all of these that you're noticing right now because I don't know what's going on and how long we're going to be here. So presumably they've got like something trenches or something that they are that they can mm-hmm. take cover on. But right. they're getting in position for an attack, essentially. It's, yeah. It sounds like. Yeah, it's about 4 a.m. at this point. And 
the thing and why my commander got shot down before uh, and why the big unit got shot down in the ambush is because Israel wasn't at war since 73, the big war, right? There was Lebanon beforehand also that we were in for a long time. Uh, but an actual war of conquering, taking over stuff like that since before the last Lebanon, 73. And, and we were in Gaza for so long. And Gaza is basically a urban contact kind of, uh, of um, combat, right? It's like a completely different thing. So in Gaza, worst thing they can do is try to roll a car on your tank from a fifth floor or something like that. And they do it. But they don't really have the abilities that this terror organization has because Gaza is still kind of within Israel and uh, the borders are still protected. So they don't get what Lebanon gets from Iran. So nobody was ready or used to this kind of combat. And, and I was really trying to all the time remember, okay, what did they teach you to do in a scenario like this? So at a certain point, I'm going on the radio with the main, main commander. And this is like a top general, right? And I start briefing him and I say, listen, this is happening. You need to understand we're in a bad spot. This is how we are standing right now. Here's my location. And he's like, yeah, I get completely get what you're saying, but we have to keep on waiting. They, they just, they're delayed. We have to keep on waiting. Who's delayed? The people that are coming to us, the soldiers that were injured. Okay. So the extract basically. So, I say, okay, give me approval to open fire because these are not our forces and there's no civilians in this town anymore. This was a town ran by Hezbollah. So any civilian that was in there is out 20 miles north. So I asked for, uh, uh, to open fire and I don't get approval. He says, that's a complete negative. You have 90 soldiers on the way to you. And I say, I understand that respectfully, but this isn't 90 soldiers. This is two or three. And they're not our units, are there? And he's like, no, there's no other units in the area. But you have an absolute negative on open fire. So we're basically sitting. And it's about 5.15, a.m. And my tank lights up, starts ringing like crazy. So we have... Meaning you're getting shot at. Not shot at, but before you shoot a missile, you measure the distance. So if somebody measures at you, it's an infrared laser... And the tank has uh, receptors that know to recognize that. Mm-hmm. I know a general area to recognize it from, right? So it's kind of like divided to eight, let's say. So one of these eight areas around you. <clears throat> and um, the tank starts ringing like crazy. And I get on the radio and I say, listen, this is happening. I need to know what we're doing. And he says, they're super close to you. You're not authorized to open fire unless you recognize and know exactly what you're firing at. And that's only the sun. Now I know the sun has infrared beams. So sometimes when the sun rises, Mm. it starts ringing. Now the thing is the sun was on the other direction and I, I, and I'm trying to explain this to an infantry general and he doesn't understand. And uh, everybody gets frustrated a little bit. And the thing is, are the other tank commanders, also communicating with this general? So or are you the... I took over a little bit. Okay. So at this point, my, my commander was, um, was an officer. Um, uh, but, you know, he, he just lost his tank yesterday. 
and I, he, he might've been in the middle of PTSD still or something of that sort. He, he just, he wasn't really acting as commander. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I kind of took over that role and now we're about 10 seconds after that. I recognize a long line of about 90 soldiers, you know, carrying the wounded, all that. And it's hard to describe it. Uh, it's like a Rambo movie. I don't know how to describe it. So right in the middle between me and them, you just see gunshots hitting the ground and going like that right in between us. So parallel right in between uh, the whole length. Now, the thing is, when you shoot a machine gun, you start low, you go up, and then it's called T. Then you go right and left. And that's exactly what they were doing. So they shot, they passed the middle and started coming back to where they start hammering right and left. At that point, I, I, I took control because once, once you get into contact and combat, you don't need any more approvals. You're not contacting people back in base. Mm -hmm. So I start yelling so, commands. Hold on. So you guys are in the canyon. You see these, the 90 soldiers that you're waiting for to extract them approaching. And as they're approaching, these two to four unit soldiers from Hezbollah now are firing on them? Yeah. Okay. So they measure distance to me. That's for missiles. Mm -hmm. And they started with machine gun. Now, at this point, first thing I say, driver, light up. It's, it's, um, the tank can create smoke. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But the diesel basically starts dripping into the exhaust system. And when I say smoke, you can, your whole building, you can hide this thing. So I tell my driver, I tell all the other drivers from all the other units that are with us, turn it on. The second they turned it on, because they don't have what we have, like the heat sensing uh, vision and all that stuff. And that's why they wait till the morning. Mm -hmm. But now I create a cloud around us. Nobody can see any of us. I get on the radio where the infantry unit is because in the debrief, they give us the whole radio station of everybody. Get on the radio with the infantry. Tell them, get to my side and lay down. Plug your ears. I tell my driver, no matter what, you don't move. We're sitting over here. You turn that smoke on. Gunner, start hitting those targets. I tell the loader what he's starting to load. So you have different types of ammo. Um... I tell the loader what he's starting to load. And the gunner, those spots you gave me, there's six different spots. I want you to hit them one by one and then circle back to the first one and do another round on each one of them. And I jump on the general radio station where each radio station has like a commander of that station, right? Uh, so in my station, my commander is the commander, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other station is where uh, the general is the commander. And then there's a big station where this is now the whole region. And I jump on that station and I give the artillery the, the command to start shooting. And I tell them, shoot smoke and shoot another type of explosive that basically, not napalm, but something of that sort to burn down the areas around us to create this whole uh, diversion so we can move out of there. And again, we're about half a mile out. So we do all this. Uh, and I get back with the infantry on the, on the radio and I say, I'm going to start driving this direction. You guys stay on this side because all right, the attacks you start we got, driving, 
are is your tank now firing on all those six at this point? Yeah, the six like I'm are trying to think about the sequence. So the sequence was you created the smoke around everything. Your gunner starts firing on the targets. Are the other tanks also firing on them? What are they doing? You have no idea. I don't idea. remember. Because <laughs> you're so remember. focused on your tank and yeah. what you guys are doing. I honestly, I don't, I don't even know. That's a great question to ask my my soldiers next time I meet them. I don't even remember. He he wasn't talking on the radio at all. I don't. I think. You know, sometimes shock hits and you don't know. Like you, you just get. You freeze like a deer in the headlight. I don't know if it was that he was still affected from what happened the day before. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't remember. What's the bulldozer guy doing? Is he getting out of there? So bulldozers, they don't have weapons. Right. Right. But they're, I'm his protection. So he, he doesn't want to go anywhere further than where I'm at. Okay. He can't move until Uh, you move. Yeah. So he does turn around towards where the fire comes from and, and lifts his front shovel. Basically, so if something happens, it hits that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all of this is about I know, two I minutes, know. right? Right. So it 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 was about two minutes, I'd say, and two minutes deep. My gunner cleaned those six spots. Went again, hit them a second time just to make sure the all the infantry are on our right side. So we're basically now between them and where we identified the source, and we basically tell them, okay, we're going to start moving. So we start headed back to Israel. Um, the whole way we leave our smoke on in the tank, just to make sure, uh, get to Israel. Uh, n- no casualties. Nobody got injured. Uh, when you say the infantry, are these the 90? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, the wounded they had got into the armored vehicles. You know, they opened the mm-hmm. back and then kind of like a, a field ambulance, I'd say. Um, and then whoever could walk was just walking aside of us all, all the way to Israel. Uh, we got back, got back to the bunker. Um, and that's pretty much it. My tank, I, I burnt my engine because you're not supposed to activate the smoke for more than, I think it's 60 seconds or a minute and a half or something like that. And mine was running for about 10. So uh, I was supposed to go to, um, I don't know if it's court-martialed or something like that. Because anything you do that damages anything, you're supposed to go up mm-hmm. like in front of a judge, right? Uh, so I was supposed to do that. And then they ended up saying, you know, you don't really need to. You did what you need to do. Um, but yeah, from from there, we kept on going in and out of Lebanon for another two and a half weeks. Um, advancing more north. Until there was a so ceasefire. So was that, that was your first combat experience? So before that, in Lebanon, when I was the previous time, there was, um, they got to the conclusion that the tank is outside, the bunker's inside in the middle of the night. And if they can keep that tank without the people in the tank, they can do other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So there's about 12 bunkers on the northern border. And each one of them has these units. So the Hezbollah came and shelled all of the bunkers for about 20 minutes. Now, me and my team, the second that happens, we're supposed to run to the tank. I come open the door. I get grabbed from the back and pulled back from the commander of the bunker. He's like, are you out of your mind? And outside, you can, it's just raining, mm. right? Raining bullets. Yeah. <laughs> raining <laughs> shells. It was yeah. cold earlier and raining. Yeah, it's raining too, this probably, is, yeah. at that point. <laughs> 
but that they they bunkered us in for 20 minutes and attempted a um a kidnapping in a whole nother region so they were trying to throw everybody off guard so after that we were able to get in our tank get up shoot the locations we were supposed to shoot of the Hezbollah that were emptied out by that time uh, but a real combat experience that was the first definitely yeah. yeah and then so you're there for how much longer in Lebanon so we're there till August 14 my birthday we we happy left birthday. out on my birthday. <laughs> that was a happy birthday. Yeah, we're in about two and a half weeks after that. Um, and then there was a ceasefire while we're in there. So ceasefires announced. All the civilians moved back to town, and we're in the middle of the town. And um, it was an interesting situation because before, you see a guy, it's a bad guy. Now you're inside Lebanon mm. and you can't open fire unless you are definitely being shot at, right? Um, yeah, so we we stayed, ended up staying that. And then, you know, other things happened. I blew my um, chain, right, that, that runs the tank. So I blew the right chain in the middle of Lebanon to the endless stories. But um, each one of them just teaches you so much so two two things one you said your loader saved your life probably the crazy guy yeah how how did he save your life would you say the the speed that he moved other than that we had a few more you know contacts that we had over there in general um but the speed that he moved, and you got to think, so we're hitting six targets, that's 12 shells. He has only six. All the rest of the shells are inside areas in the bottom of the tank. So the bottom of the tank isn't moving while the gunner is moving the whole turret, mm-hmm. right? So it's very difficult to reload in the middle of combat. And he had twice that he had to do that. He had that and then another case a little bit more north. Uh, but in general... I, I said him just because we talked about him in, right. in the beginning, but my gunner was the best gunner I've ever seen. And I've, I've seen a lot, you know, sometimes when he's out, I have to be with somebody else. Mm-hmm. My driver driving a tank, you think it's easy, right? It sounds but like fun. It's maybe not under <laughs> those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult, right? You got to know how to drive. So when I blew my chain, that was on the way back with a different driver. And, you know, it's a whole story of their own. I had to go out, blow up the chain in the middle of Lebanon, get towed out by two bulldozers. But that happens from an inexperienced driver mm. that almost flipped the tank over from the side of a hill. <laughs> I'll show you the picture afterwards. It's a cool picture. Um, but, yeah, the, the whole team came together. And, you know, I use these things today. I, I, I view everybody as my team. And if it's my sales team, or my marketing team, or my technician team, or my, I have probably 20 different teams, even with my friendships, I've used them as a team. And and today I call team family. So I call my workers family. I call everybody because I see it as a family that unite together. But a lot of these things that I learned back then, how to react and how to treat and how to, you know, the most difficult soldier, kids have difficult days, right? And and you get tools that that really help. So that circles back to how, you know, what was the one most influential thing or event in your life that shaped you the most? So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, we'll go into the takeaways part. So you are 
a tank commander with IDF. You talked about your service. And then you moved to the United States, back to the United States. How do how does one transition from being a soldier at 20, 21 years old, 19, yeah. I mean, 18, 19, 20, right? Three years? Yeah, from 18 to almost 21, yeah. Almost 21. So you can't, so you move back to the States. You go from that to now you can't even buy a beer legally. <laughs> what, talk about some of the transitions back from, from being a soldier to civilian life in another country. It definitely humbles you because at the end of the service, I became like a staff sergeant for the last four months. So I was the top of the, like the, I don't know, battalion, platoon. I don't know the terms, but 60 You're the soldiers. man, basically. Yeah. 60, like, you, you said 60 soldiers? Yeah. So I'm, I'm in charge of all the logistics. <laughs> Whoever needs something comes to me. Whoever, all of that, right? Yeah. I'm not, not, not um, the officer in charge because there's an officer in charge, but I'm in charge of all of the feeding, getting them everything they need. You all were running of that. a company, basically. Yeah, I was getting ammo, getting whatever's needed. Right. Yeah. Warehouse. Getting it. You're not like going to the warehouse to grab it, but you're in charge of Mm -hmm. like, okay, we need this here. And you're giving orders to people. Yeah. And they're listening to you. Yeah. And you're like 20 years old, basically. 20 years old. And I come to the United States. And first, I'm selling in this little kiosk in Mall of America in front of uh, what's that store called? Rainbow or something like that. I don't know. It's a store in Minnesota. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it humbles you. And. In the military, it's not like it's a it becomes a career. But at the beginning, for three years, you make about one hundred and fifty dollars a month, right? So it wasn't necessarily the the money because mm-hmm. I was making about two dollars a day in Minnesota. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't necessarily the money, but it was to okay level down to earth, readjust. I always say go back to the basics, and I use that term a lot. So you're a kid, right? You're eighteen. Yeah. You go into the IDF, and now you're an adult. I mean, you're, you're, you're matured very quickly. Yeah. Now it's almost like a reset back to fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if mental reset to a kid or something like that, because I, I still have that mentality, but yeah, when I moved to Vegas, I was, which one, the 18 year old mentality. <laughs> I, I'm hoping <laughs> yeah, maybe, but, uh, I moved back to Vegas and you know, I'm a mover lifting boxes Ten dollars an hour, whatever. Working from six a.m. till one a.m. Sometimes it's gonna. You pointed out you've been at you know tank eighteen to twenty hours a day. So coming now to work inside of an air conditioned mall or a, a, a temperature controlled malls for yeah. eighteen twenty hours a day is no big deal. It was no big deal. Yeah. And then coming to Vegas and working and moving and moving is one of the toughest jobs. It was no big deal, but you know you become all of a sudden a subordinate of the subordinate of the subordinate. And you're at the real bottom of the food chain and, you know, level up with it, take that situation and say, okay, what do I do from here? And when I recognized that I couldn't move back up, that that's when I said, okay, it's, it's time to really try something on my own. But it was moving here. All of a sudden, you know, I was in a tank. I always had my rifle with me. Mm-hmm. And in the military, it's funny because sometimes you forget the rifle somewhere and you're like, right? Like you go somewhere and then where is it? And I had that instinct for about a year in the States even. Like I wake up in the morning, I'm like, where'd I put it? Um, but yeah, security-wise, all of that, it's, it's a complete uh, game changer. Do you think you had any PTSD? I don't think so. I don't think so. My soldier did, my gunner did. But remember that tanks, it's not hand-to-hand contact, 
right? It's not, it's your, you distance mm-hmm. yourself through a lens, right? Um, I've seen some stuff, but it, no, I didn't, luckily. Yeah, interesting. Want to keep talking about this or move on to something else? No, it's fun. <laughs> no, we did a good takeaway about the, the transition to civilian life and all that. Uh, when I introduced you, obviously I introduced the different layers of you and I figured we can go through some of the takeaways around those. So you were a soldier, takeaways from transitioning back to civilian life, to adjusting to from the from Israel to the States. Uh, as a business owner of 777 Movers, and what's the HVAC company called? ICE. ICE? ICE air Conditioning and Plumbing. Nice. That's a good name. Yeah. It's uh, Indoor Comfort Experts. Ice. Oh, there's an acronym. Yeah, it's an acronym. Oh, <laughs> so smart. Uh, so you you talked about the early days where there were five employees. It's basically your your immediate family. You know, talk about more. Like, how did you, as a business owner, go from the family starting a business? I, I mean, did you really get paid ten dollars an hour, or were you not even taking a, a salary? Oh, when I opened the business, when I wasn't taking it. salary for probably five months. So, would you guys just worked off of? Or lived off of what? Just savings. Okay. Yeah. And then, so walk us through some takeaways as a business owner from, that was also about 2007, right? So 2008. Yeah. Until now, how big is the company now? So now we have for a second. Only moving? Yeah. Because you started with a family, right? Yeah. So let's do Vegas because moving, we have a branch in Vegas, one in Ohio and one in Seattle. So just in Vegas, I'd say we have about 40 employees, give or take, 12 to 15 trucks running locally. Um, Vegas, Ohio, Seattle. Mm-hmm. Ohio. 40 employees, 12 trucks. So in Ohio, in Vegas, we have about 40 employees, 12 trucks. Um, I'm probably not 100% accurate, but ballpark. Uh, Ohio, we have, I think, seven currently. We just opened it recently two trucks. And then in Seattle, we have about 17, 18 employees and seven trucks. And then we have another division for 48 states that runs semi-trailers. And I think Tom's running about seven of those now. Why did you pick Ohio and Seattle? So the first decision we made in the United States had zero strategy in it. <laughs> it worked out, you know, it, we lucked out on that for sure. But um, we opened up Vegas. We did have uh, Phoenix in California. And we'll, we'll probably get into a takeaway from that because that's an important one. But we ended up closing the Phoenix, moving California to Seattle. And then we have Vegas in Seattle. And we're looking for a triangle. So when COVID hit, we had zero way to transport anything going east because there's no trucks, there's no drivers, there's no, it was a mess. So we flew out a crew from Vegas to Ohio to be in a strategic spot so we can use that branch for deliveries and, and stuff like that. Um, for that reason, we're going to open up a branch in Texas to turn that triangle into a little bit of a square. Um, and it worked. It worked out well in Ohio. So we're hoping to use Sounds that. Sounds like there was some strategy there. Yeah, and that one, there was strategy. Got it. So Phoenix, California was no strategy. That's what you were saying? There was. That seems like there's strategy there yeah. because the when people move, I would imagine that's kind of like a circle that they move within. California, Vegas, Phoenix. Yeah. So I'll... Maybe not back to California. I don't know. I'll steal the, the 
takeaway from that, and this is a really important one for me, and I thought about it on the way here, and it's funny you said surround yourself, like-minded people, right? Uh, anything we do is based on having like-minded people with the same ideas, same ambition, same everything, um, and it's more important than anything else, right? I can really build a successful business plan, maybe even business with anybody that I know, as long as they get me, I get them, we work out well together. There's trust, there's honesty. And that's why we started opening up branches. That wasn't an uh, initial thought. Uh, one of our trailer drivers had quadruplets, four together at the same time with a 40 year old wife. Um, and he had to get off the road. This is a guy that's home two days a month. And we really try to keep whoever we have with us, no matter what. We find a different seat for them, right? Mm -hmm. So he lived in Sacramento. And we said, hey, you know what? Let's, uh, let's open up a branch in Sacramento. So we opened up a partnership with him. Went pretty good. But we weren't that profitable because we were paying workers' comp. We were paying taxes. We were doing all the other stuff that other companies didn't. And we didn't know. And then one day I call all these other companies and I say, hey, how do you charge this per hour if your employees cost this? Workers' comp, insurance, payroll tax. They're like, are you out of your mind? You need to pay them cash. That's not how it works over hmm. here. And I, six different companies said that. And I said, you know what? Then I'm not doing business over here. And I called this partner and I said, listen, if you want, you can have this business. I'll, I'll move out of it. It's yours. Or if you want to scale, we have to move out of the state. So he moved up to Seattle. So really find and structure whatever you do with people that you trust, you believe in. In Texas, we've been working with a guy for two years. We just met him down there uh, a couple weeks ago. And we've been working with him two years, sending trucks for him, and he was unloading them. We'd call the customers afterwards. How did he do? He did great. We talked to his employees. How is he as a boss? He's awesome. And once we have that in place, all the rest is easy, right? To, to advertise, to hire, to all that is easy. So that that was the answer to the question, if there was one. <laughs> I got takeaway number one as a business owner is I put right people, right seat, which is yeah. what's the book that's from good to great. Yeah. So right people and find the right seat and people that you trust. All right. So then you got into HVAC because you had seemingly the right person that asked you to go into business with him. And then he had some health issues and that didn't go as planned. Mm -hmm. So that's why you started the company. But then how did you keep focus, you've got a HV or a, excuse me, a moving company in two different States at the time, eventually three. And now you're going to go start a whole business that you barely know anything about. How do you mm -hmm. keep focus between the two? So I have another two people that I work with that I trust, believe in like-minded, all that, that I could empty my day-to-day -day tasks to them and free up to them. It's my brother and my dad in this instance, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, they, they took over most of the moving and the operations. I, I still kept marketing and sales because that's a niche that I'm, I'm really good at and I have the connection with the salespeople and all that. But we like to divide and conquer. So we say, okay, from now on, we're going to take this. This is yours. I'm going to start doing that. And my dad was essentially running it back then. And, you know, we were trying to ease off a little bit, right? His stress level was high and everything. And I said, you know what, let, let me... Let me give this thing a shot because we saw the huge potential in it. Um, and then I, I moved into basically running and managing the HVAC, 
Now I have two partners. I, we have two more partners that we brought in, one from the company that we bought into and one that was our distributor that are amazing, that, that know the ins and outs, the structures, the operations, everything like that. So it's, it's much more smooth sail right now. So what's a takeaway you can share from your HVAC company? Take risks and don't give up too easily because we're almost there. But there are, um, yeah, we risks have to be taken. And, we, you know, we take them day to day anyways in everything that we do. There's all kinds of risks and we, we manage them. But that was a big jump and I, I, was, I was against it at the beginning. You went from being the emergency brake to the accelerator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. All right. So you are a big community member. Talk about IAC and what your role is there. IAC is the Israeli American Council. Correct. So when I moved here at the beginning, I, I missed a lot of things from Israel, certain holidays, certain activities, certain things that are, it's, it's cultural, right? That just, I couldn't find them here back then. Uh, and I found this IC that opened up years and years later. And I saw it and I, I, I heard the vision and I said, you know what? That's, that's, that looks cool. And then there were certain things that happened that, that got me a little bit more and more and more involved. Um, one October and one October I, you know, we're a bunch of people now. And the thing with like, we call it the Israeli mindset. It's like something happened. What do you do? Go. You don't think, you don't calculate, you don't adjust, you don't, you just go. So I own a moving company. I took one of my trucks. I called 30 people that I know from the IC and I said, Hey, I'm going to bring a truck dropping down this and that amount of money as a donation to this cause. Are you guys in? Yes, we'll match it. We'll match it. We'll match it. We went to Costco and we filled up the truck front to back with uh, water, drinks, snacks, dry foods, things like that. And started driving throughout all of the blood donation centers, giving people cold water, doing all kinds of stuff that nobody had, right? Because they were overwhelmed. There were lines wrapping around buildings. That's just an example of so many things that aren't necessarily even in the IC core activities, but brought me into it. And then now looking at the IC, I, I really see something that, that, first of all, is crucial because a lot of people don't even see it on their day-to-day -day or don't know how to distinguish it, but anti-Semitism these days is, is off the charts. It's, I think it's growing 50% year-to-year at this point. Uh, and we've never had it in Vegas. UNLV has always been a neutral university without any issues like that. Uh, schools in CCSD never had any big problems. California is something that we look at and we say, oh, we have to make sure that this separation between us remains because what's happening there is just uh, unbelievable. Kids getting attacked on the daily, right? And it started happening in Vegas and we see it. We see it with our children. One of my board members, her son got uh, threatened, almost attacked. He's getting abused and bullied in school just because he's Jewish, right? And that that's my main passion, to keep a safe environment for people to be able to say I'm Jewish because I think the last results that came from higher education is, I don't want to skew the number, I'd say 70 to 80% don't want to identify as Jews 
because they're afraid of the precautions. I, I don't want that to be something my kids grow up into. Not in Nevada, not not in the United States. So that's my main passion. And I'm 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 a shaker. I go in and I into the board and I I really want things to move and people are there are very good people over there doing very good things. Um so that's my little niche within the IC. There's a lot of other things the IC does. Um there's things for any age basically from I think four years old all the way to adulthood, right? Um but yeah, that's that's one all of the way to seniors. Things. Yeah. All the way to seniors, Holocaust survivors, um, everything like that. And and I, another passion that I have is really bridging gaps between Jewish organizations in town. And that's why Jewish Nevada, mm-hmm. I, I just love what Jewish Nevada does. I got involved in it not too long ago, not long enough, I'd say, ago, but... Yeah, the, the the there's really a good movement and and these things bring good things, right? It's not it's not a big business uh, uh, advancement, or on the contrary, it costs a lot. It's very expensive. It's very expensive. <laughs> it's thing. very expensive, money wise and time wise, right? But uh, yeah, and if, if we look at the long term, it's I'm hoping that uh, that we're investing in the right spots. So for context, uh, America is a melting pot of immigrants and Jews from all over the world moved here, you know, similar story to many of the immigration patterns through Ellis Island, uh, East coast to West coast. And so for a century, or I don't know how much, how long exactly, uh, there have been Jews in America and over time, they are they identify as American Jews, similar to American Italians and American Irish and all that. And around, um, I don't know if it was like between World Wars One and Two. I don't know the exact time frames, but there was a time in America where Jews were not permitted into country clubs and other things like that, which is crazy to think about now. But back then, I imagine Italians stuck with Italians and Irish with Irish and so on, mm-hmm. Jews with Jews and. You can't come here. You can't come there. So for all that time, there were there are institutional. I call them institutional organizations within America that cater to American Jews, and the one we're talking about is the Jewish Federation. Mm-hmm. There's also the JCC, which is a Jewish community center. That's what it stands for. Jewish community centers were created in America because Jews could not go to country clubs. They were not permitted membership, so they started their own Jewish community centers. The Jewish Federation is a fundraising organization that raises money and then allocates and distributes it within a community, not just, for example, the Jewish Federation of Las Vegas raises money. Not 100% of the money stays here. There's other places where it goes to, like um, when the war broke out in Ukraine, if you're in Las Vegas and you want to do something, you can donate to the Federation and they make sure that funds get over there and applied. Right. But that's the Jewish Federation. They all they they support other organizations. So when I grew up in Las Vegas, I was a part of the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization, which is a Jewish high school youth group, which on the IAC side today, it's in between um, Tzofim, which is the Israeli scouts, and Etanim, which is a high school entrepreneurial program. There was no IAC when I grew up in Las Vegas. 
If there was, I would have likely gravitated toward that being a first generation Israeli American. Yeah. All this stuff to me is pretty fascinating because it gets into like identity and who you service and then where and how these organizations have a place. And now that they're both here, it's kind of like the now what? So I'm giving context to what you were talking about, but I came up in the federation system. That's what I call it. All the programs that, that were available to me as a Jewish American or an Israeli American Jew or whatever you want to call it, were sponsored by the federation. So that's my footing and my anchor. You came here as an, an Israeli American, would you say? Or well, how would you say, how do you identify? I identify as a hybrid. Yeah, as a hybrid. We talked about that, yeah. I think, once. I identify as a hybrid. You know, I I'm, call I myself was, a daywalker. A day- <laughs> do you know the reference? Right? Yeah. So With, I, uh, Wesley Snipes is the character. What's his name now? He's a, a vampire. vampire. Yeah. What was his name? Blade. Yeah. Blade from the comic books, Blade. Blade is a daywalker because he's a vampire that can also... Um, walk around in the sunlight where other vampires cannot. So mm-hmm. you're a hybrid day walker. Yeah, I see myself as a hybrid. I, I was here, well, I've been here more than in Israel in general, right? But I grew up 10 years here, almost 11 years in Israel, and then back here. So that's what makes it easy to me to connect to both ends as well. Um, but coming directly from Israel, I was looking for that, you know, that little extra touch in that arena, right? Yeah. Um, a little Israeliness. Um, yeah, a little Israeliness. A little chutzpah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> chutzpah. In Yiddish, chutzpah. In Hebrew, chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's, so it's, yeah, pretty fascinating. We're all Jews. That's our connection. However, it is a melting pot. Mm-hmm. Not all Jews are from the same place and have the same traditions and, and whatnot. Right. But that's our connection. And American Jews, there is a culture to it. Israeli American Jews or Israeli Jews, it's a different culture. Right. So IAC was created really to address the needs of this community, growing community in America that identify, that are that have an, an Israeli identity of some sort on whatever spectrum, because the Jews that are you know second, third, fourth generation now in America, they don't have any of that. And right. so there is a need for this organization, and there's a need for the establishment or the institutions and here in our community, I think we're fortunate. I don't know how it is in others, but there is a phenomenal working relationship between the two. There is. There is. And, and you know, even the Tzofim, it's not really part of IAC, right? The Tzofim is a right. movement of its own. Right. But everything together combines and, and really forms a good... So that's the same as BBYO. B'nai B'rith Youth Organization is not part of the Federation. It's a movement on its own. However, they do receive support Supported. in the form of funds mostly, but other things as well. Yeah. So a lot of similarities on both sides. Yeah, 100%. It started with that, and then it it just developed from there. We call it the Israeli DNA, right? Like, see and move. Don't 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 hold off too much. And, you know, like the anti-BDS law that was moved in Nevada, and then another, I think, 33 states. Uh, all, all kinds of things that really try to to slow down and, and hopefully be able to stop and reverse what, what's going on right now with, with the hate. Towards Jews, towards Israelis, towards Israel, you know, pick your topic and, and, and you can see what's going on over there. This is a fascinating one for me. Um, if a kid in public school in Clark County today calls another kid the N-word, what would happen? Yeah. There would, uh, the principal gets called in, the, stu- the, the counselor gets called in, the parents get called in. It's addressed immediately. Right. If a kid in Clark County 
gets called a kike or something like that, an anti-Semitic trope, what happens? Not much, yeah. which is it's it that to me, that dynamic is, is fascinating. You said the acronym BDS, it stands for boycott, divestment and sanction, which is a whole movement in and of itself globally, not just here, not just nationally, right? Specifically targeting, uh, it's really Israel. Yep. Anything uh, Israeli, Israel related, Israeli companies, products, products, mm-hmm. uh, products, services, professors, and that's how you talked about how it expresses itself on the college campus. Mm-hmm. And Nevada passed an anti BDS legislation recently. Correct. And what that does is it calls it what it is, and therefore, I don't know, if forbids is the right word, but. Um, a institution like UNLV cannot support anything like that. Right. It's not allowed. Whereas in other cities and other states, it is allowed because there is not a legislation defining it and calling it what it is. Right. So it's the government is obligated to not invest, right? So it's basically a reverse BDS into companies that do any BDS um, decisions, right? Because you as a business, there's lawsuits on their own up to the Supreme Court over here. If you are allowed to service somebody from the LBGT community or refuse service or things like that. But a business can say, I don't want to buy this specific product. But once Ben and Jerry's said uh, that, you know, they were pulling out the whole, um, Mm -hmm. everything from the, from the West Bank uh, and basically BDS against Israel now these things come into effect. Ben and Jerry's owned by, owned by, owned by, and then you get to Unilever, and Unilever is a publicly trade company that gets funds from government funds, right? Hundreds of millions. And when all of a sudden Texas, uh, Florida, Carolina, Nevada, all of these places said, listen, uh, Unilever, we're pulling out all of our investments from you because you are doing this BDS movement nonsense and Unilever tried to ring. It's not us, you know, it's, it's Ben and Jerry's. It's like, no, no, it's up the ladder and it climbs up the ladder. So, so that's one of the ways to kind of like fight and combat that. But we, now we're really trying to, I don't know, my passion other than business wise and all that is really the children. Like, like we started with and we just had, I'm I'm not going to name the school, but in a school, a big incident, like I said, and there was a shark from Jaws and the shark had um, a swastika on it and the child had a Magen David on it and the Jaws is eating up this and it continued with threats and we're going to stab you and you better not come to school tomorrow and things like that and in high school in Summerlin. And we're getting to, to, we're actually going to go and educate the teachers because even the teachers, half the things that happened, they said, no, that's not, you know, that's not under the racial and that's not under the bully. That's freedom of this and that. And it's actually not, right? Because there's national origin. There's all kinds of other things mm-hmm. that fall into effect over here. And we, we really want to get into where we can educate a little bit better and, and start from the root. Because these kids are going to be, you know, the leaders of the future after all. So you kind of got back to where I wanted to, to get to as far as ending takeaways as a family man. You mentioned that's your priority that you try to keep not even a balance, but a 70% involvement 
with your family, 30% everywhere else. So what sort of things do you do to ensure, ensure balance? Well, first of all, I have to use the happy wife, happy life. That's a hundred percent, a hundred percent, no matter what. Is that right? just a line? It's uh, it's, it's not a line and it, it develops into so many different arenas. Right. Um, but like what, what's an example of the happy wife, happy life. Yeah. I'll give you one. Um, having a child, first child, right now, wife, um, decides, you know, I want to, I want to have time with this child. I want to stay home and be with this child. And now I'm a little bit more stable, but that, back then we were still, you know, in the startup kind of thing of our business. And, and, you know, we said, I said, let's, let's do this. I'll support it. How long do you need? However long you need. Right. And it was until the point where she said, you know what? I feel that it would be much healthier at this point for me to leave actually mm. and miss the child throughout the day. So I can, and then at that point she went back to school and to work and got the child into daycare. But, you know, I could have, we could have sat and said, you know, it doesn't make sense financially. You have to get back to work ABC. But that caused not only happy wife, happy marriage, you know, but also a connection between her and the kids. And we continue to do that with the future kids as well. Um, that, that's just amazing and important. Okay. So start from there <laughs> and then down to the children. I don't know. Honestly, I, 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 I didn't really prepare with this uh, question, but I can say that I have three, uh, girl, boy, girl. And we say surround yourself by like-minded people. But while <laughs> children at that age develop their character, nobody is alike. So I would say really to find and really observe each one to his own, right? And treat them in such. And that doesn't mean love one more to, uh, than the other or give one more care than the other or anything like that. But each one is an individual developing character. And at this age... I always say school and all that, you know, it's important, but character, manners, things like that are, are, are for me, the most absolute crucial thing at this phase. So really treat them each one, you know, fairly and, and observe and see which direction you should go and how you should handle situations. So what, what else on this headline of balance would you share? So I used to work six days a week. I, I started probably 15 to 18 hours a day, right? And slimmed down, slimmed down, slimmed down, and then ended up taking Saturday off too. And it's we talk about it day to day, right? Um, there's a balanced work life. There's a balanced family, friends. There's a million balances that you have to juggle all together, right? Uh, but I I really try to put... On one hand, family top priority. On the other hand, be able to have the business run and not really um, have issues with me not being there 18-hour days, right? Or not even being there 12 or 8 or 6-hour days sometimes. Um, and also make sure to sometimes go out. It's important. What do you mean by go out? 
go out, bring a babysitter, take your wife out, go out with friends on a Jewish men's event evening in the Raiders stadium, right? Things like that. It's, it's very important. I see, you know, there are people that don't, and, and you can tell, you know, in COVID, I think Dory told, I don't know if Dory, I don't remember who told me this, but it was the highest domestic violence of all times. And then I have a friend that's a divorce attorney saying that it was the highest divorce rates mm. at all time. And then, so all of these things happen. You're like, cause they were just locked in. And I, my wife is my best friend, right? Uh, I really enjoy every moment with her and I know not everybody does. So it's not run away, but it's, yeah, sometimes give it a little space. And when I say sometimes, I think uh, somebody told me once that the, the sweet spot is once every two months, right? That's, <laughs> that's a good sweet spot. All right. I've got one last question before I ask you. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I talked a lot. That's, I, that's the idea. Yeah, that, you, that is. That you come in here and talk a lot. Did we get it? Uh, are we over the time? No, there's no, the cool <laughs> thing, there's no time. There's no time. There's no time. Yeah. Actually, before I ask you this last question, let's talk about, so I'll talk more about this with, with Tom. So my wife bought me a smoker Father's Day 2019. Mm-hmm. A Weber Smoky Mountain charcoal cylinder smoker. And I'm now starting to research how to use this thing. You might have told me, you know, talk to Tom. He'll yep. He'll help you out. And so I call him and he's helping me out. He's giving me tips. Like, you don't just need the smoker. You got to buy all these accessories. You need this kind of thermometer. You need this kind of this. And yeah. so he's like helping me. And my dumb ass, not knowing what I'm getting myself into, I wanted to make a brisket on a certain weekend, but I have to practice first. So I decided Wednesday would be a good day to start. I think it was 7 o'clock at night. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'll, just, I'll start it and see how it goes. And I remember that. I started overnight on a Wednesday. I didn't realize it was a 12-hour thing, and you don't just set it and leave. You have to take care of the fire, take care of the, you know, spritz it every, every so often. And you need to look at the smoker and drink a beer also. That's important very, phases of the smoking very process. important. Yes. Yeah. So I get into this thing. I can't remember if it was the first smoke or if it was the one I did on the weekend, but literally like I felt bad how much I was bothering Tom. Yeah. Hey, what about this? And what about that? And, yeah, and you, you also, you, so you told me, you're like, call him as much as you need to. Yeah. And so I got, I started on this journey. I started barbecuing a few years before. Remember, I didn't really watch TV as a single dude. And then I get married and my wife, Danielle, was really into the cooking channels and the cooking shows. And so I found Bobby Flay had the show Addicted to Barbecue. Mm-hmm. So that was one I could watch and tolerate and get into. It was actually very educational. He had this quote. Have you ever seen it? I don't think so. You know who Bobby Flay is? I know he is. So he's got this backyard set with like three different grills and different episodes. He's using the different grills. So one thing you learn is that the propane grill that you buy at Home Depot is not the only kind of grill that's out there. Yeah. And then every show he would make something like this is how you make a skirt steak. And today we're going to do fillets with lobster. So you really start getting into it. And he's teaching you, you know, how heat works and you leave it there and don't like you're go in the backyard and watch my dad barbecues flipping it every two minutes. Yeah. That was once upon a time. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's pushing it down. You don't, <laughs> Squeezing the you, juice yeah, out. You don't push it down. <laughs> but uh, actually I think Israelis like their meat very well done. No. Yeah. Dry. Yeah. So it's a whole different. 
technique, yeah. let's say. But I got into that, and now I'm getting into smoking. And now back to the – I didn't mention this on our like-minded – oh, I did. Barbecuing and smoking. And so I meet your brother, and he talks me through it and come to find out. At the time, you had, I think, an electric smoker. Didn't you? I did. Shameful. You blocked yeah. that out also. You blocked that memory out? Yeah. It took me time to remember. Yeah, I did. I just got into it at that phase too. Not way, not way ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. You were more of like the chemist. Yeah, I was trying and to cheat. Technique was like you didn't you sous vide? I sous vide it, <laughs> and I you know broiled it, and I did this, and I infused smoke here, and all kinds of. I was trying because I didn't want to wake up at two a.m. to put a brisket in, you know. But you can't compare. No, you can't, what's funny is like you what cheat. you what you will wake up for. Wake up at five a.m. to go to the gym. You are out of your fucking mind. Yeah. Set two alarms to wake up at 2 a.m. to get the brisket that I just spent an hour trimming, like not long before that. Yeah. Trimming and seasoning to light a fire, to get it on there. Happy to do. I'm happy to do that anytime. So you do that. And then 2.15, what do you do? What do you mean? You try to go back to sleep. Oh, so you light the fire. That's like with a Weber, that's like a half hour to 45 minutes to get the the smoke, to get the the fire started and smoke clean and to get it up to temp. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's not 2.15. It's like 3 a.m. at that point because I hit snooze a couple times also. So I didn't start exactly (laughs) at 2. You get it on there. And then, yes, you get to go back to sleep for three hours. But I sleep on the couch now because I smell like Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I learned not to go back to bed because my wife like, what the hell just happened? you can't do that. So you go. I sleep on the couch. So you get three hours as best as you can. But you're also concerned. So you're not sleeping deeper. You're like, I've got my little thermometer there <laughs> yeah. to, to make sure, is it up to temp? Is it not, you know, because sometimes yeah. it can get too hot. You have to adjust it and all that. But this kind of a thing, I'm happy to do. Yeah. Yeah. But your signature, you've got a signature, is, a signature. is cooking with a live fire. Oh, yeah. I love fire. Yeah. That's remember I told you don't be afraid of the fire. I remember that's why I'm bringing it up. Know, you got to know how to work around it. Yeah. I remember we did an we we had something during it was still kind of COVID times. It was a Zoom program in the evening, so I came to was it your house or Tom's house? Your house because you were cooking. Oh yeah, yeah. It was me, you, and Tom in the backyard. Yeah, because that was okay, right? You can like rush through the house and go sit outside in the backyard. Yeah, and you were finishing. You would. Uh, did you do a reverse sear steaks? You've made like five different steaks. Yeah, I think it was maybe a smoke. Three. You smoked smoke them for like ninety minutes, or something like that. And then you yeah. finished them on a live fire. Yeah, how'd you come up with that? It wasn't Bobby Flay. It just happened. It just happened. You know, you talked about the Israelis squashing, <laughs> and you know, my dad loves just pouring water on the fire all the time too, right? Um, what does that do? To, to not have the fire. But oh, you gotta, oh, we used to have a water bottle. Yeah, a water bottle. I yeah, still use it. flare up. To get, yeah. to get the flare up down. Yeah, I'll still use it. So it, it depends like at what phase of, of the cooking it is. Like if you're doing steak right on, you can't have it on fire the whole time, right. right? So I level it, I raise it, lower it, I choke it. It's like you said, it's a science. It's it's art. And yeah. it, it's some, pe- some people look at me and they're like, are, are you cooking again? Are you not? T-? No. I will do this every day. It's fun. <laughs> it really is. And then having it at the end and the surprise is it's going to come out good. Yeah. Right. I just put 
eighty dollars every, every time, right? And sixteen hours of work into this is this, and then all of the people are around the island, and you slice it, and you can know. You don't even need to see the second that you know. But you know, after a few painful ones, I think it's easier now and more predictable. Aaron Franklin says, in order to make really good barbecue, you have to make a lot of bad barbecue. A lot of bad barbecue. Remember the second brisket I ever made? I spent the entire Sunday outside. I didn't help Danielle with anything because I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm babying this thing because I didn't know like you can actually walk away. I didn't know no, that. No, you're not allowed to. <laughs> you're not allowed to walk away. <laughs> Don't have Natalie hear that. You and know, she, was, she was MFing me the whole day. Like, you know, like I literally helped with nothing that yeah. day. And then, so she sits down with her slice of brisket and she puts it in her mouth. She's like, Oh my God. And I was like, what was that? Uh-huh. She's like, Oh my God. It was, it was like, it was a successful brisket. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. The payoff was there. All right, sir. I usually like put a little more emphasis on this, but I'm going to leave it general for you. Cause I think you could take it and come up with something good. Okay. What advice would you give anyone listening to this episode? So I like to always say, no matter what, I, I try to stay stay humble and never be too proud or too smart or anything like that for anything, right? I both surround myself with people to strive to learn from always. And also there, there's companies much smaller than me, people not even with companies that have advice, I'll always listen. Right, and I'll take it seriously and judge myself based on their comments to see if I'm really where where I should be. Um, so just, I'd really say just stay humble and never never be too proud to hear. I I listen to the podcast. Each one I go out with a takeaway of my own. You do structure it and organize it and and find the little tidbits that are very good. I saw you while we were over here live, but. Uh, other than that, I, I, I hear stuff between the lines also. And every time I'll hear something else and I'll be like, you know what? That's, that's a really good one. So just listen, right? Listen and learn daily. That was very fascinating because when I introduced you in a way, you know, I've got five or six lines that describe who you are as a business owner, a real estate investor, a community, um, person who's involved in his community, a devoted family man and all that. But there's so much in between the lines as I just learned from our conversation here today. So thank you for coming on and thanks for talking to me. That's just mine. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.